Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This episode of The Bip Show is brought to you by Akamai. Akamai powers and protects life online. Akamai has two major parts of its business. One is security, and the other is Edge Technology, or CDN, both of which are delivered via their massively distributed Edge platform. On the Edge Technology CDN side, Akamai offers delivery and Edge compute. On the security technology side, Akamai solutions surround and protect your clouds, data centers, apps, APIs, users, and also your workforce. For more information, visit www.akamai.com. And now, on with the show. Hello, you're listening to The BIP Show. BIP is for business investing and policy. That's what we're here to talk about. Don't forget to hit subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. A reminder that all the financial information in the show is general in nature only. Speak to a professional advisor about your needs. I'm Paul Colgan, Director at CT Group, the Sydney-based research and campaigns consultancy, and I'm joined by James Whelan, uh, investment, manager, uh, investment manager even at uh, VFS Group. How are you, James? Uh, not so bad, Paul. How are you now? I'm good. I almost called you an investment manager. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, I do some management uh, work on the charge. Uh, <laughs> it's not so bad. Um, Right, she's uh, she's been a bit of a wake, hasn't she? It has, yeah. Um, I kind of feel like everybody's sort of limping towards the end of uh, 2022. Next year's going to be a big year. Rates likely to go up. We've got an election in Australia. Oh, the COVID stuff's going to go on. So, um, yeah, so but yeah. We're getting there. We're almost there. We're almost there. It does. It does have that little feeling that everyone's sort of like they want the end of the year to just be the end of the week, uh, end of the year but know full well what is facing them with both barrels into 2022. A little bit of a stat for you, if I may, is that if the first 10 months of the year are good for the S&P 500, and by good I mean over 20%, then it's a pretty bullish signal for the last two months of the year. So on average, when the S&P 500 is up over 20%, uh, November has seen a return of 3.7%, and the last two months of the year have seen a return of 6.2%. Uh, a very handy statistic to carry into the end of the year, but I do feel like everyone is sort of depending on that as just being the norm and <laughs> being a little bit just, it just doesn't seem to have enough weight behind it right now. And uh, and, and I want to see what happens towards the end of the year. Yeah, well, it's certainly been interesting. Like there's, the, you know, we've been talking about inflation to, you know, going blue in the face talking about it since yeah. March. Um and now it looks like the chickens are coming home to roost. The Fed is changing its tone, um, but no repricing in equities yet. Um, so um, I guess I guess we will see. Um, we, sure, we have seen a lot of people realign what their assessment of transitory actually means. So <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, when I said transitory, I, I obviously meant 
like two years. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. Six years, of course. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so, interesting show ahead. Um, a few weeks ago, most of our listeners will be aware that Facebook shut down for a few hours. Um, now, you can cue your jokes about the world being a better place for that short period of time, uh, but there definitely were real implications uh, out of what happened. Uh, Facebook's market cap lost billions of dollars in value. Uh, and importantly, the company's ad services, which are obviously its money printing machine, but also the way that a lot of businesses source their traffic and their activity, um, that ad service stopped running, right? So small businesses and medium businesses couldn't target their customers, etc. Um, this is a simple working example of how important technology is to so much that happens uh, in the business world. And of course, not that it's just a business risk, but it's also an investment risk. So getting in under the hood of how all these things work is what we love to do on the BIP show. So uh, in this episode, we are delighted to be joined by one of Australia's leading cybersecurity experts. Uh, Dan Housden was recently recognized by IBM for his role and leadership in promoting cybersecurity standards in in this region, Australia and New Zealand. Uh, He's regularly consulted by corporates and government agencies on building and maintaining effective uh, cybersecurity management systems. Um, As you will all know, I'm sure the threat environment is very dynamic. Uh, Dan also has a long career spanning public and private sector work, and he is now managing director of Sydney-based Recon Tech, a cybersecurity consultancy. Dan Housden, welcome to the BIP Show. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Much appreciated for coming along. Yeah, uh, it's great to have you here. Um, look, can we get straight into the spicy stuff? Um, what are the evolving threats that are out there? We all went through a period of, I'm sure, you know, um, being bombarded by funky text messages, trying to hack our phones. Um, but what are the big things that are out there targeting companies at the moment? So there are a multitude of threats that are actually spanning the whole marketplace, not just here in the region itself, but also globally as well. Um, the not type of hacks and, and type of ransomware attacks are evolving. Um, so you can have direct attacks against a corporation or a business itself. You've also got general ransomware attacks where people are trying to encrypt the information on your hard drives or your PC at home or even the actual corporation itself and ransoming your data back to you itself uh, for a price and uh, then of course there's uh, a number of issues related to uh, IoT devices and uh, the access to data that comes out of IoT devices and the protection of those IoT devices at the moment as well. So there are a multitude of different hacks that are actually happening across the board. The whole idea is being a little bit vigilant. One of the stories that I've loved uh, telling um, is that uh, on, on this show from time to time and James it's not the chicken story um, it's the chicken story no I'm not doing the chicken story in 2021 um, uh, um, it's um, that there are rigs in the Gulf of Mexico now that have a million sensors on them right that are uh, connected and feed data in a continuous stream back to you know um, oil company HQs in uh, Houston, say, and instead of having to have engineers uh, out on these rigs monitoring the performance of all the different devices uh, and pieces of machinery, um, they're able to tell by these connected devices, uh, you know, 
what parts might need servicing, what needs to be looked at, whether things are getting too hot or too cold, etc. Um, but ov- obviously, all these things being connected, um, Dan, there um, are they are they or are those types of sensors are they potential targets for people to get into wider company networks? The simple answer is yes. Uh, these sensors, these devices that are sitting, whether it be an oil rig or even in one of the autonomous vehicles, they are just sensors. So they're what they like to call dumb devices. So they're not meant to be touched. They're not meant to be moved. They're not meant to be adjusted. They're just there. All right. But if someone decides to touch them or decides to try to change them in some way, shape, or form by uh, t- changing the code or the changing the information itself, uh, it creates a hole within the network, if that makes sense, or the hole within the communication structure between the sensor itself and the corporate organization. Many organizations nowadays have been affected by this one. I actually had one only, what would have been about four or five weeks ago, where a customer had a series of sensors out at a, a solar farm. And when that solar farm got, uh, we did a penetration test against that solar farm, uh, we were able to get into the sensor data of that one, which then gave us access to their corporate infrastructure. What? And we're, Really? Yeah. <laughs> so, so when you say corporate infrastructure, how far are we talking here? Can you see drives, internal drives? Can you see company records, that kind of thing? Yes, that's the simple answer. So if they if they have uh, almost they've set up their infrastructure itself, so they have a very, what they call a very flat networking infrastructure. Um, so the sensors sent the information into the network. The network then stored it on a big file server that uh, stored all stored all the data. Just so happened, all the data that was stored on that file server just so happened to be also the corporate data as well. Goodness that's me. why you do pen testing. That's why you do pen testing. Absolutely right. Yeah. So, and is so. Uh, help me understand this. Is that easy to manage? So, if you identify that risk, is it easy to manage? Is there a simple fix for that kind of? So, so you've got these things, which are, it's called edge computers. Is that right? Is that a simple way of uh, explaining? That, that is yeah. one of the ways. So, yeah. there's there's multiple different ways to protect. Your corporate data from your sensor data. One of one of them is to make sure that when the data is coming in, that it goes is checked beforehand to be able to make sure that it's the right data that's meant to be coming from the sensors, and nothing else has been injected into the information that's been sent to that file server repository, if you want to call it that. Hmm. Um, then, of course, if you want to add an extended layer of security to the whole mix, you then want to separate your sensor data, let's say, to your corporate data, so that only the sensor data is stored in one repository, let's say, or one data file, file server, and all your corporate data is actually separated into a different one as well. The problem is with doing that one itself is most businesses are trying to save money when it comes to IT and, and like. So therefore, they're looking at bigger data repositories across the board uh, to save money, obviously. And the result is they might be combining large amounts of data from large different sources into one big repository across the board. Right. So, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a sensible thing if you're a startup or, a, you know, small, medium-sized business. Okay, we'll have a couple of servers. Um, that's sort of all we need. Is there a way to seg- segregate those data if you've just got one server that you're trying to use, like, like by using cloud infrastructure or? 
Yes, look, there's the whole idea behind using either cloud infrastructure or on-premise, what IT people call on-premise infrastructure itself, mm -hmm. is all about separation. So if you've got critical data or important data to your organization, it should be separate from all the general data that should be in an organization. That could be your ERP or your uh, your financial data itself to the business. It could be the sensor data in that business. It could be the HR data in that system, in your systems as well. You want to have a level of separation and cloud has actually allowed you to be able to provide storage of that data on demand at large sizes relatively cheaply across the board. Mm. So it really comes down to how you've actually set up your security processes and whether you want to put them in separate repositories or separate uh, storage points or whether you match it all together itself. So so even, even just for a first bit of simple uh, uh, actionable thing that you, that you can do, if you're like director of a company, and uh, you're wondering about this, and you go and talk to your infrastructure people and say, hey, have we adequately separated any of our IoT uh, 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 equipment from the rest of the corporate network? Would that be a simple question? Yeah, that's the simplest and, uh, and, simplest and the most basic uh, what we call security control that you would add to IoT, as an example. Just mm. put your sensor data in a different point that is only accessible by certain people rather than having it just broadly put into a big bucket of data. Right, okay. Um, all right, uh, so look, there's a lot of um, really good reading out there and um, that I've done. I, I love reading about Stuxnet, okay? There's a great doc on Netflix if, um, I, I think it's on Netflix if, if, if people haven't seen it, right? So Stuxnet was this legendary virus um, that was sort of released into the wild and it had this amazing property where it was able to find and physically damage uh, equipment in Iran's nuclear program. Absolutely phenomenal uh, uh, bit of software. Um, uh, it, it's, you know, it is kind of, in some ways, you can correct me, uh, Dan, but for me, this is kind of like the gold standard of, you know, um, uh, uh, large-scale infrastructure kind of attacks. But it's because it's so widely known uh, in terms of like what, you know, how it worked and what it actually disrupted um, that it kind of is an example for me of like how you can, uh, with some software, do some physical dam damage to infrastructure. Um, now, I suppose all of us had, uh, at some point, had some thoughts about what a prolonged outage to a major piece of infrastructure might do to uh, how we, you know, get from A to B in the morning or, um, you know, access money. James, in your case, um, uh, take money from clients or... Um, uh, you know, help them with their redemption so that they can uh, pay for the pool upgrade or whatever it is, right? So, um, but um, uh, the government has this thing, Dan, the critical infrastructure bill to try and deal with this in Australia. Obviously, governments around the world are looking at, at this. Um, so the, cr the critical infrastructure bill, does it do what's necessary, do you think, um, given the threat environment? And maybe you can explain what it's, what it's trying to achieve. 
Yeah, so the Critical Infrastructure Bill has been, uh, well, there's a Critical Infrastructure Act, which was inst- uh, put in place around 2018. And it was focusing on things like the energy sector and uh, ports and uh water and defence, all right? And that's when the, uh, the original Critical Infrastructure Act was actually instigated. And it was actually surprisingly to your point around Stuxnet earlier, where Iran got uh, impacted by the actual Stuxnet worm and when everything started going down and when things got overheated, because basically that's actually what happened to the worm. It actually turned off things, and that's pretty much what it did. And when that happened, uh, the federal government basically said, we have to protect our energy sector, we have to uh, protect our water, we have to protect our um, uh, the information pertaining to our defences, obviously, and make sure that organisations that are providing these services, whether they be public and or privately funded organ- uh, businesses itself, are making sure that they are protecting the information to those IoT devices or those sensitive inf- information itself across the board. So that happened in 2018. Now, what's happened recently is that the federal government has decided to extend that one out a lot further. All right, so they're turning around and saying, well, there's a lot of other critical infrastructure items in our uh, community that will may affect a number of different things. So they've added things like financial services and markets to the mix. That's above and beyond the banking codes and things like that from from APRA. The communication sector, obviously the telcos and the mobile phone providers across the board. Data storage and processing providers. So things like your cloud service providers are now having to report accordingly from that one. Higher education, so the universities out there are going to have to, as part of this whole bill that's being pushed out at the moment, Food and groceries, so people like Woolworths, Coles, IGA that we see around the place are also going to be part of this as well, as well as the healthcare and uh, medical sectors in, in that mix. Um, there's more. Um, I don't want to go through them all individually because they all have slightly different requirements on each one of them itself, um, but they're, they're, they're just a, quite a few of the number of different uh, industries now extending this, service, this uh, legislation into. Right. So with each of those, are there prescribed um, things that you need to be compliant on with, for each of those industries? So there, there are the classifying it as industries and assets. So any asset is listed by industry. So the great example would be for things like higher education and research. They're talking about if you are a higher education provider, tertiary qualification provider under their Standards Act, and you're provided uh, support by financial institutions, then you are required to protect any information that, uh, in accordance to this uh, critical infrastructure bill, that you are offering out to the public. All right, and that could be to students or it could be to general public users. And they haven't specified all the different assets they want to be able to incorporate with that one as yet, which is a bit of an issue from what the government's pushed out at this point in time. But they're basically saying it's a blanket rule across the board that you should be actually protecting infrastructure across the board. That's So each sector has their own individual requirement sets that are progressively getting richer and bigger every single time the, com- uh, the federal government comes back out with more stuff. But there are actually two things that are actually inherently required um, across the board. Number one, you need to be able to report your breaches and have a risk management plan that has to, this provide, that you have to report to the federal government um, and state, here's the person who's responsible for it, or here's the group that's responsible for it. Here's the amount of time they're going to be uh, they have to report within. 
And on top of that one as well, you have to do a number of tests to be able to make sure that your infrastructure, your information, your sensors and the like are checked on a regular basis every year to be able to make sure there's no gaps or concerns that actually might cause an outage. And uh, Dan, just coming in, it's good to talk to you. Uh, thank you for coming on today. The Speaking of myself as um, not only a human being, but also as an advisor on cloud services and, and also on sort of the, you know, the defence to all of the dark arts that are trying to attack us, but also as someone who used to run a BCP for a broker back in the day, um, a business continuity plan for anyone who doesn't know what that's about. But it sounds like what you just laid out is a bit a bit expensive, but uh, it's always been expensive to pitch to defend it, but it's always more expensive when, <laughs> when, when it all hits the fan. So a lack of for a better word, a lack of vigilance on this one. What sort of costs are we looking at potentially if, if anything sort of goes up? Because I know that the costs that we used to incur back when I was doing this 10 years ago would have been X and now I think there's probably X multiplied to infinity. So what sort of, if, if you have a security failure on one of, on one of these situations, what, what could that possibly set you back? So it comes down to how widespread it is. It could be very targeted uh, at a particular area. It can be very broad in general. But if you're, uh, let's take an example of an energy utility, whatever it may be from there. If that went down, um, uh, part of the grid or part of the network itself, that would be catastrophic, obviously, from there. Um, The impact across not only the public reputational aspects, but also the impact of actually trying to recover from it is absolutely crazy. So prevention is the key. I used to use an old ratio of 1 to 10, all right? So for every $1 you spent um, and to protect the information, if you did then got hacked or broken into, it, it generally cost you $10 to recover from that type of situation. Mm-hmm. So so for every dollar you spend in protecting the information, so your cybersecurity strategies, your practices, your consultants, your vulnerability scanning, whatever it may be in that, in that instance, all that goes out the door if you get hacked because it takes 10 times that amount to be able to recover from the actual situation. A couple of really good examples that came out of that one, uh, there was a large telco provider, um, Vodafone, who basically got hacked a number of years ago itself. They lost a significant amount of their customer base because of that hack. Uh, personal identifiable information went out. Uh, they tried to quash it in the media as much as they possibly could, but people found out about it, obviously, from there. And, pe- and a lot of people left the Vodafone. And Vodafone actually had to change their overarching strategy to attract those customers back to them as a, car- a telco carrier provider for the mobile phone services back uh, probably about four or five years ago now. And they're still dealing with a low-cost option to try and recoup the actual customer base they actually lost over that period of time. So the, uh, and this sort of leads me on to something that I was thinking about, which is the visibility of companies and sort of the the, the, the bigger you are, the bigger the target is on your back. It's difficult not to agree, but I think that a lot of a lot of places do get hit that you don't really hear about, but far and away, that the bigger place you are, the bigger target's on your back. So what what should places be doing to try and avert those sorts of, as they grow, and there's a lot of really good growth companies that are getting really big really quick, um, what sort of stuff that should, should they have in place to, to avoid that? So one of the things that I've been working on quite significantly is we call something called enterprise architecture, which is actually building out your technology roadmap, your technology design mechanisms with cyber included. 
Uh-huh. Many organizations have historically built their IT operations or built their technology operations um, and just delivered on it, okay, and said, yep, we're good, and then they tag on cybersecurity as a adjunct to their standard operations. Yes, yes. Um, more recently, probably over the last three years, I've noticed a significant trend or change where organizations are no longer just embedding enterprise architectural or technology adoption as just getting it up and running and getting it working, there's actually trying to bake in cyber risk management into the, number one, the acceptance of the technology they actually want to go with, number one, but also into the actual processes and procedures as well as the role access and access people are needed to those systems as well. And they're baking it into the actual architecture of that one and also who should who should and what should access it from there. So that is actually a big change over the last few years. Um, I'm sure your old BCP world, um, you probably understood what I meant when I said it's it's tagged onto the side at the end. Um, it's changed significantly because people are now just baking it into the base. Yeah, yeah, and it was uh, sort of situations, I mean, not that we were hacked, but, but in a BCP, then all of a sudden you've got something like, for myself, if I could just sort of go a little bit off tangent, the Lynn Cafe siege, and all of a sudden Sydney had to, a chunk of Sydney had to evacuate and BCP had to uh, had to be enacted and then there was this little sort of subsection with regards to what would, I, what, what, would uh, what would we do during a pandemic and nobody really paid much attention to that little section until all of a sudden we were actually in a pandemic and everyone had to work from home. So it was a good, it was a good build. Uh, Colgo, you got something to say? I do. Um, yeah, I just want to jump on to one thing in a second. But before that, a message from our sponsors. This episode of the BIP show is brought to you by Akamai. Akamai powers and protects life online. Akamai offers solutions for DDoS mitigation, application and API protection, stopping account takeover and bot attacks. On the enterprise security side, Akamai offers scalable and secure remote access and protection against the threats targeting your workforce, such as phishing and malware. For more information, visit www.akamai.com. And Akamai is A-K-A-M-A-I. So get in there, a very well-known uh, um, uh, IT security provider um, in my uh, career in publishing, uh, Akamai saved us um, a few times. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Um, uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, DDoS. Uh, so, um, Dan, the DDoS has been a thing that's been around for ages, and it was you know you got um, you know anonymous, which in some ways is you know a bunch of kids uh, in their bedrooms. Um, but then there are much more sophisticated DDoS um, attacks, which can you know, result in outages at banks and have done and um, other uh, types of um, important businesses. Um, how are they working these days? Because may- maybe you can start by explaining what a, a DDoS attack is. Yeah, let's, and, and sure. Uh, yeah, let's do the let's do the letters first, and then go into the rest <laughs> of it. There, I think D- DDoS stands for Distributed Denial of Service. All right. So it's a a denial of service is when you are trying to get somewhere and that service is basically not available. 
All right, that's very, very simple explanation to what it is. Distributed denial of service is where many PCs uh, attack a single server or single device or single cloud infrastructure itself. And basically, by the number of connections that are going to it and the amount of traffic that's going to it, the server just is overwhelmed with the information and it just doesn't have time to react. So in the old server world, when you query a web server or you go to a website, there's actually what they call a three-way handshake that occurs. You as the person who's trying to access that web server handshakes with the server that's on the other side. That server then turns around and sends a response back saying, yes, I'm here, thank you very much. And you then turn around and request your relevant information from that server and it allows that to occur. In a distributed denial of service or DDoS, um, what happens is, is you've got so many requests for information going to that server, the server doesn't actually have the time to respond back. And it's trying to respond as quickly as it is, but there's just too many coming in at the same time. And because it's been continuous, that server doesn't have a response, so therefore you don't get to the application or to that web server that you're actually trying to get to at the time. So is it something that's used a lot nowadays? Yes, is the under, understatement of the day. It's Previously, we heard about things like Anonymous using DDoS to render certain things like political websites and information, uh, uh, take it down, or to attempt to hack into that environment by using DDoS. All right. Uh, nowadays, a lot of organizations, a lot of corporate organizations and what they call state-sponsored actors will actually launch DDoS attacks on whether it be political bodies or corporations to actually get ahead on them when it comes to a release of a new product or system. It doesn't really happen heavily here in Australia as such, but over in China, in Japan and in the US, um, if you're, if someone, if an organization is releasing a new product to marketplace, and the market, one of their competitors actually finds out about it earlier, they actually sometimes will create a DDoS attack to stop the release of that one so they can get their own product out to marketplace. Oh, wow. Yeah, right. So, okay, so they're scanning for, you know, this person um, has said that they're going to update this um, particular product or whatever. I've got a counterfeit version or a, a, a solid replacement, and I'm going to try and take them out. Yes. That's right. Another good example that happened a couple of years ago, we all heard about the census uh, from the Australian Bureau of Stats. Um, Isn't that amazing? Oh, yeah. That's a really good example of a DDoS attack. Yeah, actually, yeah. Dan, yeah, run, us, run us through that. Yeah, so basically what happened was the Bureau of Stats was uh, launched the new census website and was encouraging everybody to, instead of filling out the paper uh, census that had been around for 30, 40, 50 years, I'm not quite sure how long it went for, but they decided to get everybody to start going towards the online version. And what happened was is they, when they sized the environment, the servers uh, that were required to host the actual census data, uh, census and allow people to be able to fill it in. What they didn't do was they didn't stop what they call geo-blocking. So they allowed organizations from not only Australia, but from overseas to try to connect to the census, census and to fill in the details. Um, 
someone over in uh, China and the US, uh, and it was actually a, a very big DDoS attack, basically attacked that sense of servers that were sitting within the ABS, uh, was actually sitting within a cloud environment, I won't tell you where. Um, but basically they attacked that one from outside of Australia and basically threw in so many requests to that server, it just overloaded the server itself. So therefore, when people were told they had to log in and fill out the census data, they clicked on the website and they just couldn't get there at all. Mm. All right. So that uh, that attack actually lasted about four to five hours until they realized what the problem was. They then made a small cybersecurity change, a very, very small change. But as we talked about earlier about reputational impact, the census was basically ruined as a result and people didn't have any confidence going to the actual census website to fill out the information as a result. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, um, uh, you know, we've had similar outages with, um, I mean, it's one of the things that I talk bang on about a bit, like, you know, when we talk about using technology to solve uh, important problems, uh, you know, in Australia, so I'll give you an example um, the really good example is the ASX, um, James, I'm sure to your horror, um, has uh, been in the last couple of years, uh, has, you know, had some severe outages. Where... Yeah, we're very aware of the outages of the ASX hat. Don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah, where well, you can't place <laughs> trades, um, you know, yeah. um, and so important for market functioning uh, when there's an expectation that, you know, people need to be able to, like, liquidate positions, make trades, you know, et cetera, that, um, uh, and they can't. Um, now, look, um, DDoS is obviously they're mobilizing a whole bunch of machines. And the classic is, uh, Dan, there's, you know, you've got some virus uh, often built by, you know, um, again, the teenagers or whatever. Um, but I, I, I'm, when, I, when I say that, I don't want to also downplay the... Uh, the scenario where this is done by very sophisticated actors, whether they're uh, in the corporate world or um, state-sponsored uh, or indeed state actors, um, people who are directly acting on behalf of um, uh, you know, a foreign intelligence agency or whatever, because it can happen. Um, but they've got a whole bunch of machines that typically on the teenager scenario, they've put a virus on a whole bunch of people's home computers and they're able to direct those to go and visit a particular website. Is there a difference between that type and then the more sophisticated, uh, well-resourced attack, or is it the same kind of principle? So the, the, there's, there's similarities between both, but the one that where you're using your at-home PC, someone's using your at-home PC to attack a particular server is typically what they, is more lined to that DDoS attack measure. Right. Um, when it comes to sophistication nowadays, you have what they call targeted attacks to, cut to corporate organizations. Uh, basically, uh, to use the example earlier around someone's going to release a new product and a corporation has decided they're going to attack that, that uh, release so that it's not available, um, just so they can minimize the impact to going to marketplace. Um, they are more focused on sophisticated direct attacks where they are sponsored, they're driven, they're focused, they have a goal in mind. And they're the more trickier ones to be able to profile across the board. There's malware, there's what's called advanced persistent threats or APTs that are involved. You've got ransomware attacks there. You've got what they call Kerberos, roast, uh, Kerberos roasting attacks where they're trying to get into these systems some way, shape or form to stop the service from acting. Um, 
So what, what's that called again? Cobras roasting? Cobras roasting or Kerber roasting, they call it, um, which is where basically what happens is, is you have what they call a Cobras ticket or a certificate that sits within your PC. Um, if you're authenticated or have a, an authentication, you can actually change that certificate that's actually sitting on your on your PC itself, send it back to the server itself and give yourself elevated or additional privileges to access more information. All right, so Kerber roasting happens a lot more and more and more today. Um, it's a type of attack um, that's being used in the marketplace, but the whole idea is I want to get access to your information. Previously, many, many years ago, things like credit cards were important. Um, nowadays, it's all about the information highway. It's about profiling individuals and understanding how organizations actually run rather than actually trying to actually take credit card information across the board. Right, so it, this is like um, the profiling somebody, knowing that um, somebody works in a particular function in a company, and you know that by their finding them on LinkedIn or whatever, and being able to impersonate another person or um, whatever. I mean, the classic is, hey, this is the IT department. Um, I just need to make a change to your computer when when the thing pops up. Will you let me in? Um, so there's th those kind of things, but but you know, yeah, it, is that is that the type of uh, way that these um, uh, Kerber roasting attacks happen? Yeah, they can absolutely. So just like the example of uh, what James used earlier when uh, we were talking beforehand, he turned around and said, "Oh, you went to uh, Shaw School," and I've gone, "Yes." He's actually gone out there, looked at my LinkedIn profile, found out where I went to school, turned around and realised, "Oh, he knows a, a, a whole bunch of stuff. He's got a whole bunch of interests in that instance." Yeah. You will then go to that server and try to replicate or say this person's likely to have more privileges or more access to everything across the board. So I'm going to try and mimic him or mirror what he would potentially do to be able to access servers and systems across the board. Yeah, right. Well, so what you should hear me do so when I when I do my social engineering it's it's a real it's 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 a work of art Dan. I can say it really can be. But sorry Cog, go on. Yeah. So so um so there's the but are, what are the other sort of tech technological um, approaches. One of my favorite uh, examples I use of this, which is, um, I wrote a story about this a few years ago, uh, which is keystroke monitoring um, by uh, audio devices, right? So yep. you somehow get a, uh, a, a little microphone, uh, it, um, a bug uh, in somebody's office, and it's, it's pointing at their keyboard. And you yep. can listen to the strokes on their keyboard and you know what they do when they log in in the morning and basically over time you build up a profile of what that person's keystrokes sound like and then you get to learn their password. And from there you can log into them, uh, log into their system as them. That was the one that like floored me that this was, and it, it had been spotted in the wild. So it was developed by a state security agency you know you can, you can probably guess that there's probably about four or five that would have done it um so it was but it was uh, at, spotted in a sort of non-state sponsored environment um a few years ago by a security agency which i thought was fascinating and um, what other things are out there that are um that might uh give people pause to to think about their 
risk environment? So the key thing is in security space, we don't often use social media, to be honest with you, Um, mainly because the more information we put out there to social media, we typically don't uh, want ourselves profiled itself or have be available to social engineering or so itself. Um, Talking to your point around that keystroking thing, that's actually been resolved now. You might notice that your Apple iPhone or your Android device uh, no longer makes the different noises depending on the keystrokes you use when you're actually trying to type in your pass key yeah. into the actual phone itself. You might have noticed that one recently. Uh, it's actually ha- it happened a, co- a few years ago now, but previously when you used to type in someone's phone number, it used to make a noise for the digits that you were actually using. Uh, if you're making a phone call out, you can still do that one and you can still profile it. But if you're trying to put your pass key or face ID or your fingerprint in there, it typically doesn't make any noise anymore when you're actually trying to do it other than a base monotone noise across the board. Mm. So that's something that has been a security improvement based on what you were talking about earlier with the keystroking side of things. Um, but you're absolutely right. There are bucket loads of things where people can protect their information. When things like an email comes into you, okay, don't just assume that the person who's sending the email is actually the person who's sending the email. Okay, you've got uh, when it comes to you see the from field, it might just have the person's name, but actually check the email address is actually coming from it. If you don't know the email address is actually coming from, not just the name that's actually listed in your Outlook or, or your Good Gmail, then check it. Okay, um, check the email address. Make sure it's actually the person who's actually meant to be sending the information to you. If you're accessing a web application on the internet, uh, whether it be uh, within your company organization or whether you're going to a website, it should always be have that little HTTPS at the beginning of it. And if you actually click on your browser in the top left-hand corner, it actually you can actually see what the certificate is associated with that actual IP address as well. So uh, with that with that uh, website itself, I should say. They're all just little checks that people should do every single day to be able to make sure they're actually going to something that's legitimate, all right? And they're protecting the information that's being presented out into the marketplace, obviously, as well. Because people like Facebook um, profile you based on your behaviors, on looking at things like what you're browsing on the internet, like from there. They are actually grab intelligence or what they call AI behavioral analytics to be able to identify what you're using how you're using to actually build more automated hackings to actually get within your corporate networks. Mm. Um, and what about things like apps? Like uh, famously, you know, people have been warned that, you know, oh, TikTok is, um, you know, monitoring all your uh, keystrokes and that kind of thing. What, what about what about that kind of risk uh, on people's mobile devices? It's something I, I, I have... Been, I've said in the market before, privacy is dead. Um, I, th- I feel as though privacy in the world of the internet has uh, uh, disappeared many, many years ago. Every single website you go to nowadays is trying to profile you in some way, shape, or form because they want to sell more stuff to you. Uh, they want to uh, advertise better to you. Um, there are even research organizations here in Australia that are grabbing intelligence data with regards to what you're spending on your food, how you're spending on your credit card. Um, and, and all that information is about profiling you to be able to provide better services or capabilities from the organization who's actually offering that service. You want to look at information and want to go to websites and want to go to applications that you trust. All right. If you're unsure, uh, as a security professional, I typically don't install it or don't go to it. 
Um, you just want to have a look and find out whether there's anything that's actually wrong with it, or if it looks suspicious, it's more than likely going to be suspicious. Mm. That's uh, pretty. That's a pretty good rule across the board. Sorry, Colin. Yes, yeah. Um, and say with something like we've got one one other question for you, Dan. So, so um, things like um, I love a good BNPL question, right? But um, you know, we we started the show talking about all this, you know, stuff that's out on the edges. Obviously, payment terminals are just everywhere. Um, people have got you know NFC on their um, phones to pay with. Um, they're connected to. Um, these um, the the uh, vast businesses that BNPL um, companies are building in terms of their data. Um, h- how does security work in that environment where there's you know what you are doing and then what the company understands about you and the potential risks there are um, to the company or to you from those kind of from those kind of new technologies. Yeah, so the good thing is about those new technologies that are coming out, there's something called the new payments platform, which was actually released by uh, ASIC, I believe, uh, a couple of years ago, and has been endorsed by APRA. Um, but basically what's happened is that the old, the days of you putting your credit card information into a website to be able to do something is sort of over. People, PayPal came along and changed that game a little bit when it first came about. So PayPal acts as an intermediary between the merchant and yourself uh, around the identity of the information around your, your transaction, all right? So the new payment platforms uh, is very similar to that one where they can use QR codes. So you can scan your QR code to pay somebody directly and then it goes to an intermediary before it goes to the actual organization itself. And the only thing that's shared between the, inter- the actual merchant organization and uh, yourself is the ID of your payment. Does that make sense? Right. right. So therefore, a lot of these, remember I told you earlier about things being baked into security, being baked into new technologies. The things like the BSB, the account numbers, the credit card numbers, all those type of things are slowly disappearing to go into these newer payment platforms, which are basically acting as intermediaries. And the only thing that is being seen from the merchant end is this is the ID and this is the person who's done it. All right. As to how they've done it, where they've done it from, what bank account details have come from, what their credit card numbers are, it's all anonymous now to the merchant as to what you're actually purchasing from them. It's fascinating. Um, got to ask you one last question, Dan. Uh, crypto, are you a fan or, or not? <laughs> I, 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 I've made some money out of it, so I have to be a fan. <laughs> um, I like it. Uh, I like the crypto idea behind it. I, th- I think there's uh, some definite options around crypto. Uh, Bitcoin, when it first came out, um, loved it. I was actually asked to do some testing on uh, blockchain uh, in, when was it now? Probably about 2011, 2012, right. as to how it actually could operate. They were 35 cents each at that point in time. All right. Um, I had bought a few for testing and I completely forgot about them. Um, and uh, then I got a uh, investor relations notification um, saying, uh, so you Bitcoin now. Uh, at that point in time, I logged in and realized there was something like $18,000 each at that point in time. Oh, so <laughs> I was I was one of the uh, lucky ones out of that whole mix. Um, Are you still holding said, them? Uh, 
not as many. <laughs> <laughs> not as many. But that being said, though, it, it, it's gone. It's blown up over the last uh, eighteen months or so. Anyway, I think there are, I think bitcoins are up to something like seventy or eighty thousand dollars at this point in time now. So. Mm. Uh, it was a good investment. Do I think it's going to go further? I'm not quite sure. Um, the new cryptocurrencies, I'm a little bit more skeptical of. The people who developed Bitcoin, we don't know actually who developed Bitcoin in the first instance, um, but they they made it a finite currency system. So no one can actually create more Bitcoin. The amount of Bitcoin that's available in the marketplace are there. There was actually an interesting occurrence happened, I think it was 2017, 2018, where cryptocurrency corporations or people who built cryptocurrency wanted to uh, launch it out to marketplace when they got to a certain market cap or market size or price they decided to release more of the actual coins onto the marketplace they're therefore devaluing the actual product uh, new cryptocurrencies are susceptible to that one in mm. some way shape or form yeah yeah without the cap yeah interesting yeah, interesting. Um, look, Dan, Dan, this has been a um, fantastic chat. Uh, let me just wrap it up uh, quickly uh, before we say goodbye. Uh, this episode of The Bip Show has been brought to you by Akamai. Akamai powers and protects life online. Uh, Akamai offers solutions for DDoS mitigation, application and API protection, stopping account takeover and bot attacks. On the enterprise security side, Akamai offers scalable and secure remote access and protection against the threats targeting your workforce, such as phishing and malware. For more information, visit www.akamai.com. Dan, this has been a great chat. Thanks very much for making the time to speak to us. No, James and uh, Paul, much appreciated. Thank you for, for giving me the opportunity to have a chat. No worries, James. It's been fun. Mate, always good. Have yourself a good uh, a good evening. Talk to you later. Will do. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate us, and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on iTunes at the Bip Show, uh, or and in uh, we're on Twitter. It's at underscore Bip underscore Show, and we're on Facebook to just search the Bip Show. James has a website which is now hosting all the extras that we can't get to on the show, including a few trades and positions folks might want to have a look at based on the chat here today. Uh, Google Whelan Capital. Follow the links to the Bip show uh, we're on twitter individually at colgo and at james whelan 42 uh, and dan very sensibly uh, as he was pointing out doesn't put himself out too much on on social uh, so uh, this has been great uh, the show is produced by rick salter we'll catch you next time thanks for listening